I think that being authentic to who you are and what you're trying to do with your company is number one. All of us employ people, right? So we have the privilege to help people experience a good chunk of their daily life in an environment that we co-create. And that's an amazing honor. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. There is a special breed of part-time Vermonters that give first, paying it forward to make our state a better place. One of those people is entrepreneur and lifelong storyteller, Mike Farber. Welcome. This is Sam Roach Gerber. And Dave Bradbury. Recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you? I'm so happy to have you here. Well, it's amazing to be here. And thank you for that really generous intro. Oh my gosh, of course. And I just have to start by saying you've officially made it. You're spending more than half your time in Vermont. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you very much. This wow. was a long time coming. Yes, it has been a very long time coming. You know, yeah. uh, like both of you, we have roots in Massachusetts, but my wife and I, uh, Carolyn, were married up here. Uh, a little over 25 years ago at this point, and that's when our love affair first started. Wow. Happy and anniversary. That's a big milestone. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Awesome. And so how's it been being in Vermont more full-time than ever before? Any any surprises? You chickening out yet, or are you feeling okay? <laughs> yeah, it was It was like 42 degrees this morning. Yeah. So, yeah. Which, and I'm in shorts. Yeah. So yeah, you're playing it cool so far. I, I'm okay with that. We'll check I, in I, with you in like February. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's, that's going to be really important. But I think, you know, the, the, the thing that I'm just most excited about with regards to spending more time in Vermont is this. And what I mean by that is... The growth that's happening with entrepreneurship in the state and the sort of confluence of things that are happening in the world at large that really position Vermont in this amazing place to just create the kind of companies that sort of meet this moment. Um, there's so much happening in the world. I could talk forever, so I'm not going to. But the news of Patagonia yesterday in terms of selling, all that kind of stuff to me is fitting. That a was the narrative. baller move. Right. Right. Of Patagonia. Oh, the ultimate. The company to then have the proceeds flight climate change, but also to, to do political activities as yeah. well through that. It's truly the most badass move of all time. Did it, did it make you want to go out and buy something Patagonia? It did, I, yeah. I totally did for me. Yeah, you've got your vest I, on. I, so. I, I, I've been doing Patagonia since uh, way back when. Like, they have a little outlet in Freeport. So when I was yeah. in college, I would go up to it, and that's when I first discovered the company. I think what's really – there's a million things that are interesting about this, about this news, but – it's the back end piece that's interesting. And what I mean by that is a lot of times entrepreneurs are rightfully looking, what's the exit? What's the exit, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and she may be thinking, okay, how do I maximize income or how do I do this or that? And uh, the, the, the Chouinard family, the founder, took a very different route, right? They could have gone public. They could have done like what REI did, but they created a new model yeah. that potentially the entrepreneur right here at VSET could look at as inspiration in 10 years when she wants to start something. Uh, they did. They went so far beyond the giving pledge. Um, yes. And it cost them more money to do it. And mm-hmm. uh, really a, a special, special situation and an example. Yeah. And 
And you're right, um, Mike, like pretty st- neat. starting, you know, doing, figuring out how you can do things differently. Like when they like, I think it was maybe five years ago now where they like canceled Black Friday, yeah. right? Where they just shut down on Black Friday. That's the kind of thing that other companies followed suit, right? Because yeah. they saw it could be done. Or buy one jacket, not five, right? Totally. Of course, yeah. of course I have four. <laughs> but, hey, hey, we got to, hold on. We need to ask questions here. So oh. please. Yeah. So I, one thing I want to start with is like, Let's talk about young Mike. Like, were you always interested in business and growing things and entrepreneurship? Sort of. Okay. So young Mike grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Really? Which, this yeah. is new information to I, me. I, I'm full of surprises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, trivia question, capital of Pennsylvania. Oh, probably one of the ones you got wrong, right? Oh, yeah. Like, Philly, yeah. Pittsburgh. Harrisburg, Harrisburg. I've forgotten that. Yeah, exactly, right? It's a, hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a I, I have trouble with, like, things over three syllables, so that's yeah. probably why. <laughs> I'm sure that's why. <laughs> so I grew up in Harrisburg. Um, I grew up with a single mom, and I mentioned that in the context of business-minded young Mike. Yeah. So we didn't have a lot of money growing up. I knew from the jump I was pretty much going to have to put myself through college. So one of the first entrepreneurial things I did was I had a paper route, check. I mean, and for those of you who don't know, there were actually paper routes that little kids would run around and do the thing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the historical. Exactly. Exactly. Don't just look at your Who knows? We might have a huge Gen Z listenership here, okay? We don't know. That's true. That is true. uh, I'm Uh, waiting for the first robotic paper route to come out. Like, I want to be the kid that has, like, the little, you know, the... The Boston Dynamics dog robot delivering the papers. Running like, around? That would be cool. I would pay more for the paper just to have yeah. the robot. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. The entrepreneurship piece, though, is I hit ninth grade high school. Um, I was pretty involved in a lot of things. And I did not have, it was an afternoon route. I did not have time to do the afternoon paper route. Mm. But I could do the weekends because it was during the morning. The Harrisburg Patriot News, which no longer exists, had a scholarship that they gave to kids, had to be a senior though, who had a paper route. So I basically sublet my route to like a little kid who did it Monday through Friday and I paid him for that. And then I hung on to the Saturday, Sunday thing. So I would stay eligible for the scholarship. And you like this went through your head when you were 14 as a freshman being like, I need to keep a foot in the door for this scholarship. Totally. You know, and I think there's, I think there's a, um, a parallel there to entrepreneurs in the sense that I think a good entrepreneur is always sort of thinking ahead and yeah. like what what can she do to help position a company or something for the future. And I knew in my case um, that I was on the hook for college. So it's like, how am I going to make this happen? Yeah. Right. And how am I going to make it happen in a way that I want to have happen? Right. Which in my case, now we get to New England, was I very much wanted to come to New England for school. You know, grow up in central Pennsylvania, not really my jam. Penn State, amazing school, but I didn't really want to go 40 miles away from home. So, you know, I had big ambitions for the schools that I wanted to go to. I wound up going to Boston College and, you know, cobbling together different sorts of scholarships made that happen. Did you get the newspaper scholarship? I, I did. My picture was in the paper the whole bit. Oh, we're going to need a copy of that, I think. I need to dig that up. That yeah. would be sort of funny, I have to actually. go back to the microfiche room. Yeah. And <laughs> All right, so let's let's jump ahead a decade or more and and tell us about your time at Schwartz, what it is, why you yeah. were there, and then how that led to Launch Squad. Yeah, so um, both of those are communications agencies, and um, the way I found myself to Schwartz, which uh, 
at the, when I first joined, it was tiny. I was one of the first employees. Was actually out of law school. So I'll just tease on this for a second. Um, like everybody, you take little paths. Not everyone has like a real linear path. So I went to law school. Uh, I thought I might want to be a lawyer. After the first year, I was like, nope, this is not going to happen. Um, just really did not enjoy the work. Um, but I talked before about an entrepreneur's hat. Now I put on my marketer's hat. And I was like, I finished my first year at a pretty good school, and I sunk some cost into this. The last thing I should do is leave. So I finished up the program, but I started thinking about how could I market or position myself as somebody who like has that kind of training but can go into something else. Mm. Um, and I had always been interested in journalism. So I thought I would go into journalism, um, but then I did, I'm not a math person, but I did the math of my student loans to like journalistic salaries and I was like, nope, not gonna happen. So then I started looking into communications. So uh, that's how I discovered Schwartz Communications, which at the time was about 10 people in suburban oh, Boston. Wow. So it, yeah, it was really early. Um, and uh, it was founded by a husband and wife team, Stephen Paula May Schwartz. I totally hit it off with them during the interviewing process. Because uh, you don't really seem like a person that connects with people well. So that, I'm, I'm pleased <laughs> to hear that. Surprising, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of surprising. So. <laughs> he really pulled it out. <laughs> but here's the part I loved about it. Like, like one of the things, I mean, I'm learning something right now from the two of you, right? Like, I think that it's really important for people to always learn from interactions and listen and absorb. And from Stephen Paula May, I learned a million things. One of the first things I learned was trust your gut and make stuff happen. So I had been going through this long process with big New York firms and they were like, oh, we'll get back to you. And this is, could you pitch dog food? And I was like, no. And you know, at this time, technology was just starting to take off and I was fascinated and continue to be fascinated with technology because it just cont it's continually changing and your brain's on fire. But what Steve and Paula May did in their interview process with me blew me away, which was I talked to Steve. He sent me off to talk to Paula May. I talked to one other VP. I came back, Steve made an offer. I was like, what? You're already making an offer? Hmm. He's like, we trust, we, we, we like what we're hearing. We're a growth company. We feel, you know, we're going to check your references to make sure they're fine, but let's like figure this out and move you up to Boston. And I was just blown away. And, you know, obviously I was very humbled, but then I also realized that a good entrepreneur moves fast. It's really easy to paralyze yourself with thought. Hmm. And Stephen Paula May had spoken to, dozens and dozens of people all the time. They sort of knew what they were looking for. Yeah. And that agency in it itself, uh, particularly in its, its early stage, was very unconventional. Right. So they didn't want somebody who had like done all this time in another and, agency. And did that, did that scale? I mean, great. You're employee number 11, but yeah. you know, when you start to get up to whatever the top was, I mean, can yeah. you continue to do that? Do you recall? Uh, I can recall, and the answer is not well. And what I mean by that is... Um, I, I jumped from Schwartz when Stephen Palomay, which is very much their right as entrepreneurs, made it very obvious they were going to sell. And I knew that I was not interested in working for a larger corporate overlord based out of New York or London. Mm. Not, not Sam my and I have made that decision as well. <laughs> yeah. We just don't want to be part of a big overlord network. And we just have so many offers. It's crazy, right? <laughs> Well, I, I think um, I've always described myself as unemployable, but you're, you've gotten I'm, there, lady. Yep, get you're there. there now. Sorry. <laughs> a lot of ways, good entrepreneurs are unemployable, oh, right? 100%. That's why they start their own businesses. 
totally, totally. They're a disaster. That's why, I mean, there's so few. I mean, this is why, I mean, I'm Tangent City right now, and I'm apologies if you think Mark Zuckerberg's the greatest person on earth. But that dude should have not been running Facebook for years at this point, right? Because there's a different skill set, in my opinion, between the entrepreneur and that scrappy kid who figures out how to go up against those rich, beautiful twins and create <laughs> Facebook, and then the person who can scale it into something that obviously created a lot of wealth for people, but at what cost? Yeah. Right? So I do think that there's something to entrepreneurs, you know, it's few and far between that have the same skill set to start something and grow it into like a billion dollar plus company. Do you think he's wobbling more off his access since uh, Sheryl Sandberg left? He's, his core, I mean, the core, here's the thing about all of this. The, those companies basically make money from internet advertising. Right. And he's struggling. The company is struggling to figure out how they are relevant in 2022. Right. So, you know, this whole meta thing, I am on the cutting edge of technology. I think it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And maybe it will happen at some point. But Dave, I've heard you talk about timing and market timing. They're just way too early. And they're just trying to figure out a way to keep the market cap up and keep up with their competitors. I just had Meta tattooed on my shoulder. <laughs> oh, that, a little bit early, you think? <laughs> shoot, shoot. All right, so, so, so Launch Squad, is that, yeah. how'd you end up Yeah. that? So. Yeah, so what happened there was, um, I mentioned before that when Schwartz was going to go public, I was like, or get acquired, I was like, I'm out. I really don't want to do this. So I had a little bit of a reset in terms of thinking about, okay, what, what would I want to do next? Uh, and I thought about the things that I really loved, right? Um, meeting and mentoring people, mm. meeting fantastic companies, being able to move really quickly without bureaucracy, mm. um, and thought, okay, what is the right kind of platform to make that happen? So when I had been at Schwartz, um, back in San Francisco, so right after Carolyn, my wife and I were married, we moved to San Francisco for a couple years and I helped start up the San Francisco office for Schwartz. I worked with, um, some really good friends of mine uh, who then went off and started in San Francisco a company called Launch Squad. So I joined them as a partner to start up the Boston office for that. And that to me felt like a really good like step in terms of going back to what I really love in terms of the work and not dealing with the bureaucracy and meeting these phenomenal like entrepreneurs, right? Um, and building something from scratch. So um, it was really great because I had the, unlike a lot of the entrepreneurs here at VSET and other entrepreneurs, I had, I had somebody in the background to like do the healthcare and to like do all that kind of stuff, which it's is, a dream. Oh, the it dream. is the dream, right? Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness, that stuff is just mind-numbing like, to me. Okay, now now go to HR. You know. Yeah, like, right. Yeah. Like I like you know I I would hire somebody and then be like, okay, go get your stuff. <laughs> and I didn't need to worry about it. I just needed to have her like focus on how to do great work. That's awesome. And were you look, you were looking for an opportunity to get back to Boston, obviously. Uh, oh, yeah. So my timeline, I did come back to Boston yep. with Schwartz. Yep. Oh, okay. So, gotcha. Yeah. So Carolyn and I moved out to San Francisco and we sort of call it the extended honeymoon. Yeah. We just out there for a couple of years without kids, like nice. doing the thing. Love it. So then you started this Boston office at Launch Squad. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, a little <clears throat> voice crack there. Um, and tell us about sort of the early days of having your own 
group out there and starting yeah. to work with companies? Like, what were those early days like? They were amazing and really intoxicating in a lot of ways and really made me fully appreciate what entrepreneurs do every single day. So, you know, my first day with Launch Squad was basically the FedEx truck showing up and dropping off a laptop at my house. And, you know, this is pre-COVID, so people didn't work from home. I'm like, oh, my God, where am I going to work? <laughs> right? So, um, <laughs> um, I... Was I, you know, I have a couple, a number of people down in the Boston area that I'm, I'm friendly with from a business perspective, and one of them was a venture capitalist. And he said to me, "It's like, hey, Mike, this is really cool. You're starting this. I've got an extra office, like, just work out of my office in Kendall Square." So um, uh, the group's called Fairhaven Capital, and um, I would, I went there. So uh, at the beginning, I was like a salesperson, right? So um, I put myself on a meeting quota, I had a whiteboard and I said, okay, I've got to build some clients before I can hire some people. Mm. So I'm going to get out there and I'm just going to start networking and meeting companies and just work through all the people I know. So I put myself on a meeting quota of three in-person meetings per week. And I just was, I would not cold call anybody. Like I didn't, you know, I don't think cold calling has a place, but not for that kind of business at that point. I was networked enough that I knew I could find some interesting people. So I did. And I just started to call through people and call through people. Just build that network. It's awesome. It sounds fun too. Um, so talk about a little bit about kind of Launch Squad today. Like what are the services that are offered? What type of companies do you all work with? Yeah. So um, Launch Squad's sweet spot is very much companies that are looking at markets and thinking about there could be a different way of doing things in a way that's, that's better. Mm. Um, and it is across all sorts of different technologies, um, but then it can also be very consumer-facing. Um, so I think that the, the connective tissue is companies that have something that's different and also have great stories to tell. Mm. Um, because from a marketing perspective, um, there's a lot for entrepreneurs to be thinking about. And sometimes what gets lost in the shuffle of analytics and data-driven analytics and all that kind of stuff is, 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 is the emotion, is the connection with the customer or whomever it is that you're trying to reach. And this is definitely not like science, but it's not pure art. It's this really cool blend. And many times what happens is an entrepreneur is so close to what she's doing that you just lose it. That like you can't quite see that. You're so close and you're, you know, you're busy paying the people and you're busy trying to raise money and all that kind of stuff. And that piece doesn't come. And that's where I think having uh, the ability to, to, to find a partner that can help you through that stuff as, you know, a foil basically to go back and forth. with. Yeah, yeah that's so true. You do get in the weeds that you... You lose, I don't know, just communicating the magic, right? The why, yeah. why I care to know about your product or where yeah. your brand and, or feel a, an emotional connection to it. Um, yeah. So that's, gosh, so many, you do lose that, right? I mean, just think about even our own experience here at VSET, right? We have the worst name in the world. It's like, you Sometimes know. we have to like, oh, right. There are people that like don't know what we do. <laughs> Yeah, You know, because that's and that's hard when you have a small team. Right. And so can you share with us just an example of a company that came to Launch Squad and kind of what 
issue they were facing and sort of how you turned it around and helped them sort of get to where they are today? Yeah. Um, I'll go with Gihan, who I know you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> is a classmate of hers from, from um, Amherst Regional High Amherst School. Regional yeah. High School. So it's a, it's he a, was one of the ones we knew was going somewhere. I'll put, I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's amazing. Um, he, he's one of the co-founders for a company called Ministry of Supply. So Ministry of Supply is a pretty well-known Boston brand, now international. Uh, they do apparel, um, but there is a technology element to it, which is An MIT cool. technology, I believe, right? And thank you for paying attention to the branding, right? Because this is part of what we worked with them on, yeah. right? Where uh, a company like that will sometimes face this like, need to feel like they have to prove they're a fashion company. And that was one of the things that I think was happening at the beginning. They're not a fashion company, right? And, and what's interesting is the market has now moved where, at least with regards to the customer base that Ministry of Supply cares about, fashion is not like front of mind. But that wasn't necessarily the case when they started the company. But then it's very easy to lean too much into the other piece, which is the performance piece, mm-hmm. right? So for, for the listeners, Ministry of Supply makes dress apparel for men and women that looks fantastic, but then performs, you know, just like the Under Armour or Nike or Noble sort of stuff that they wear when they're working out. So it's this really cool um, blend of the two. And from a technology perspective, they actually have licensed uh, stuff from NASA to help them with the performance of the stuff. Um, the company so has essentially you can bike to work in your suit is sort of the idea. That is the most practical application of yeah. it, or to or, or present in front of your board and not have sweats yeah, the size or, of Lake or Champlain. Or get on the Green Line in uh, August, <laughs> right? So, of course, so no one's getting on the Green Line right now. So uh, no, not unless yeah. they want to put out sorry. a fire. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry to bring that. Although I'm sure there's uh, you know protective properties with the apparel here, so. Um, all right, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's yes. that. So, so, so with ministry, when they came to us, um, they, they were tiny. Uh, they were, you know, the, the, the founders and maybe one sort of hero product, the, the dress shirt, which still continues to be their signature offering. Um, but this is a company that has gone through a lot of growth and a lot of iteration over the last five to seven years where, um, you know, they've, they've uh, introduced pants and suits. They introduced... Um, uh, women's apparel. They have gone more towards more casual clothes as the market has sort of changed that way, right? I mean, the work from home sort of. I, I can't remember. I, I love me some ministry, but like I'm not wearing the ministry shirts anymore. Yeah, I wear the, the pants are fantastic. I actually wore the pants in Europe hiking one day. They're fantastic performance, like, but collared shirts aren't as big a deal anymore, right? So like any smart company, Ministry of Supply is moving to sort of like understand their market and then provide products that fit within their sort of authentic like view of what they do. I recently clicked on one of their ads because of well, gotcha. I saw their t-shirts. The it, t-shirts like t-shirt collar. Yeah, it was no collar. So Yeah, they're great. They're like this like merino polyester blend. They perform I'm really waiting well. for the friends and family code before I buy them. I get you. I get you on the way out. I won't say it on there, but I can definitely right, get you. All right, all right. Definitely. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so what other, as a company is considering, you know, um, creating their brand or evolving it, 
like what what lessons any any tricks or tricks um any any secrets or insights to the most common mistakes or the you know is it doing it uh, too informally right you know just meaning the team sits around a room and thinks of it instead of asking their customers or like how do we help one of the people out in our room behind this wall yeah. you know maybe with a couple of low hanging fruit uh insights sure sure um i can get into the tactics in a second, um, but I want to make a super important point, which is authenticity is the most important thing a company can bring to any piece of their marketing, um, particularly when you're smaller, because there's a reason you founded this company, right? And this company, for better or worse, represents you as the founder, mm-hmm. right? So it's going to have certain pieces of DNA that are you. I think a mistake that a lot of companies make when they start thinking about marketing and start thinking about branding is they think, oh, I have to have these geniuses come in and it has to be this. And at some point when a company gets to a certain size, I imagine that there is a certain like benefit to that. But you got to be a really big ass company for that to really pay dividends. I think that being authentic to who you are and what you're trying to do with your company is number one. it is super easy to do this on your own to start and then find smart people who want to help to help sort of shape it and guide it. So uh, on, the, on, the, on the drive up here, um, I listened to How I Built This, right? Like a well, wonderful, never, never, never heard, heard of that, yeah. you know, a fraction of the listeners that you have. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he likes to take notes on what Dave and I do. But. Yes, I wonder, absolutely. though, if we just looked at Vermont, Sam, if we had more listeners. That, that would be possible. Well, that would be something possible. Something to shoot for. <laughs> but I'm mentioning this in the context of the interview I heard. So I, to- I think I've told you this. I totally crushed on this company called Rivian. I don't know if you know what they are, but they're an electric truck. So I've been following them since 2017, 18. I'm very much like a climate kind of person. Um, But anyway, so the CEO of that was on like two days ago. And they came up with the name Rivian. uh, Which I love. Right? It's a great name. Uh, It was a team of engineers that did it. And they did it after two other tries. The first one was horrible and was like a holding one. The second one, they got sued by a car manufacturer and they were like, we have no money. We can't do this. Oh, no. Like at the time, the team was like 10 people. Uh, so then literally they did a brainstorm with the engineer. It was only a team of engineers. And it winds up that it ha- it, it, it's basically named after a river by where RJ, the CEO, grew up. Aww. Love it. Authentic. Right? Yeah. And, and they didn't have this, like, crazy, like, they, they had the engineering methodology to check the boxes to make sure it worked, right? Like, it, it, it didn't translate into something in another language that was bad, you know, certain yeah, right. things like that. that. But, like, so to sort of finally get to your question, um, once you put the authenticity in it, don't overthink it. Try and find people who you think are smart and creative and understand you and your company and what you're trying to do, maybe an early customer, uh, and just brainstorm with them and just try and figure this out. Now I'm talking about sort of the company naming kind of thing. But then I also think that for initial sort of marketing efforts, Mm -hmm. you can easily like move that over to those efforts as well. So I know you're both very familiar with uh, Chief Lie. And um, just watching from afar, the way they have their 
authentic brand voice locked in. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing, yep. right? And I don't believe they have like outside marketing people helping them. This is like them. Yeah, it's authentic. And I mean, boy, and I've come so far since Middlebury's campus. Totally. But I think, you know, there is that pressure, I think, from young young companies that to hire a professional to do things, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes that just leads you to overthink and spend a lot of money. Yep. And I think, you know, you have to be really careful not to always listen to the loudest voices, right? Because, you know, I I know for a fact that they've gotten people who, you know, don't like what they're doing, don't think that they should have the sizes that they have or the models that they have or the what, you know, whatever it may be. And to give Charlotte and Georgia Crace credit, like they don't care. They know who they are. They know who their customers are. And they've stayed so focused on that. And that's, to me, that's the part that makes good entrepreneur because I am wishy-washy as hell. And I don't have that in me to just say, no, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. So if if the first thing, listeners should remember around this is authenticity. The, the second one, in my opinion, is have a strong point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, people are overwhelmed with like marketing, like everything. And if you try and be everything to everybody, you're nothing. nothing. You're vanilla. You're yeah. vanilla. Yeah. You're yeah. absolutely yeah. nothing. Yeah. Give me the Heath bar. Exactly. Yeah. And for, for better or for worse, people are more opinionated in 2022 than they were in the past, mm-hmm. right? So lean into what you believe because what will happen is you will attract more emotion you will be more sticky with the people that really matter mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't really matter where you are in your growth cycle right that's particularly important for the companies here at visa because they need to find those first customers and sort of get them on board and all that kind of stuff but we began this by talking about patagonia mm-hmm. right they are they, they they have always had a really strong point of view on things and th- th- it's becoming even sharper now right as they become bigger and they grow they continue to grow which is really brave you know that was a conscious choice because usually when you're bigger you're like well sales for the sake of sales we're going to appeal more red states blue states yeah um really fascinating i mean vermont has such a a number of these founders that when you think of authenticity like uh, skeeter and corinne prevo uh jake and don are at burton my gosh walking the walk for all these years uh and, and on and on. Um, how does this translate to sort of business, B2B type stuff? It, yeah. Or does it, right? I mean, how do you show authenticity if you're a, a, a CRM solution? Yeah, right? it's a great it, question. Yeah, Can that yeah. happen? Yeah, I think it can. So um, it can happen around a couple of different things. First, it can happen around culture. Mm. So, you know, many times, you know, particularly a larger Uh, technology company has a lot of people and they want to make sure that their people are happy and feel part of something larger and trying to do something more important. Right. So there's a piece that can help there. Um, In terms of having a point of view on certain things in like problem solving, that can also be like really important. Right. So like Try to think of a good analogy. I mean, this is an early, it's it's an obvious analogy, but I think it's relevant to this case. Someone like Slack, 
right? So Slack, now everyone uses Slack, everybody knows what it was. But when they started, it was like, what is this thing? Weird. It was really weird, right? And, 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 and what they saw was they wanted to take the sort of customer experiences that she may experience on a personal side from social networking and the horrible kind of communication platform that was available from a work perspective and marry them and create something that then the customer would feel great about. And it didn't matter if she was thinking about it as, you know, the, the, the sales account executive or, you know, the person at home looking at Instagram. It's like or the Facebook. Lotus Notes killer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's I, so, you know, another way I think to think about that, Dave, is around um, the kind of innovation that enterprise companies make. There's so much inter- innovation that is happening on that side. And a lot of it has to do with just improving the customer experience and making it more seamless to sort of replicate what they experience in their personal life. Because there's no reason why, you know, you should have a much better experience on Instagram than you do at what you use at work. Yeah, you know, Sam, I'm thinking of uh, Wide Will with reputation management. I mean, through their videos and their people, they live online review, reputation management. That's yeah. what they do, and they're, they're crushing it here locally. Uh, fluency with that team, with robotic ad uh, systems. Again, that's all they, 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 all they do, and they, but they do it better than anybody. Yeah. And, and I think of uh, Noreen Hall and InSpace with their, their education, learning, video, and, and platform. So um, I needed that five minutes to sort of answer my own question. <laughs> Took me a little bit here. <laughs> so wait, hold, one, one, one. If you were starting a car company, your, yours would be called Harrisburg. Right? <laughs> there you I, go. I, I'm not sure that would work. But, I don't. I, I no. I don't. I don't think it would work, particularly with the. I, I. I don't know if you're familiar with Three Mile Island. If you remember that at all, but yeah, the rivers through Harrisburg were full of radioactivity for. No one wants a car with three mi- a three mile range <laughs> exactly. in it, right? It's not gonna work. All right, Sam. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. I love it. Um, sorry, did you? Are you getting a truck? I've been on the waiting list for over a year. All right. So well, I can't wait to go for a ride when you get it. Oh yeah, and we'll do it in like February, like through like Perfect. big snow banks. Yes, <laughs> I'm I'm here for it. Um, so one of the things that really jumped out at me is one of your goals with Launch Squad was. To, to create a workplace that values humanity. Yeah. Which, ah, oh, that that really hit me. And I just want to hear what that means to you and and why that was important. It's a, it's a wonderful question. Um, I have this very interesting view of work um, where I firmly believe it is part of who we are, but it does not define who we are. And I think increasingly more and more people are starting to see that and recognize that. And, you know, as, as all of us employ people, right? So we have the privilege to help people experience a good chunk of their daily life in an environment that we co-create. And that's an amazing honor. And Having the ability to bring some humanity to that is really important. So, you know, we think deeply about things like kindness and authenticity and collaboration, but not like in a 
Steve Carell office. I'm going to put it on the wall. It's, you know, I'm a bit of a writer and I firmly believe you show, don't tell, Mm. right? Which is a classic writing thing. Yep. And if you try too hard to tell people that you're authentic, you're not authentic. Yeah. Just be yourself. Yeah. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. Um, I, 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 my, my mom was a teacher. My dad uh, was a professor. Like I come from teachers, and maybe that's part of the reason I take so much joy. As I say, this is helping. starting to make sense. It's yeah. starting, to get, <laughs> starting to get Mike a little oh, bit here. Is this here. the couch part now where I went out and you start to do? <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. that and so that I mean I love that right just being authentic in your leadership and showing your employees you know that you care right and about yeah. who they are and what their lives are like and things like that and do you think that you know, just to get to the business side of it too, like yeah. did that help with retention and totally. growth and absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And here's where, here's where the, I think the world's going. I don't see those two as separated, mm-hmm. right? I don't see the business and like humanity piece separated. I firmly, and, and I do think this is a bit generational um, in all the right ways. I do believe there is more of a confluence between the two. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse, COVID has accelerated this because the boundary, the work boundary now has become more blurred mm-hmm. and that the physical work boundary. And some people have the discipline to just shut that off. Some people don't. Um, but it's a lot easier than it was 10 years ago yeah. to do that. And employees now have more power as well they should. Don't get me started on the death of unions and all this kind of stuff. But because of the way that the market is right now with hiring, um, particularly in technology, they have leverage, yeah, right, right, to bring it to business. Yep. So there are certain things that they are rightfully wanting in their work experience, particularly after having proved, emphasis on proved, through COVID, 18 to 24 months of lockdown, companies continued to grow. They continued to grow at record levels. Yeah. So why, why are you telling me exactly what I should be doing with regards to my daily life? Right. Right. And some people may want to come into the office, which is amazing because there's a million benefits of coming in the office, but some people may not. And to me, that's part of humanity. Yeah. Right. If you want to make sure that your work is done in a way that you're at home and you're able to go to your, you know, your son or daughter's 3 p.m. soccer game without having to do 90 minutes commutes. Right. You should be able to do that. Or feel like you need to hide at the soccer game. Right. Yes, <laughs> like- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I exactly. Love it. I love it. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. My turn. Sorry. No. She's very excited. I can yeah. tell. Very it's going to be a good question. Well, maybe it's not my turn. I, no, please. I don't, want, I don't want feedback through our email system here. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about sort of Vermont yeah. and the innovation ecosystem. You, you hit yeah. on it you know, earlier that, yep. boy, this seems to be our moment. Yeah. Um, do you think we got here consciously or were we just so far behind we're ahead again? I, so I'm relentlessly positive. And I, w- I would argue that Vermont has always been ahead. Uh, and what I mean by that is I think we're increasingly moving to a values-based capitalism. And that is something Vermont has always had. You know, going back to companies like Seventh Generation and Ben and & Jerry's to, you know, companies that are being created now. And you look at, I know we keep talking about the Patagonia news, but we look at that and that is a indicator of where a certain kind of capitalism is going. Um, yeah, I, I worked with a client for a number of years who um, is actually a Republican. And one of the things he talked about, he grew up in Western Pennsylvania. And one of the things he used to talk about was capitalism was out of balance. 
And what he meant by that was there was so much emphasis on the bottom line and, and profit that employees and values were just being put aside. Mm-hmm. Um, Vermont has always been at the front forefront of integrating values into business and then not just putting it up on the wall, but living it, you know? Not a coincidence like 1% here, things like that. It's just, it's, it's, it's an amazing place for right, all Right, or we of lead that. with employee-owned firms up here, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and then I also think that um, increasingly we're having a creative economy um, because there's only so much iteration that's happening. I, I, I think we're going to have a big shift forward with technology at some point, but it's, you know, look at your phone. The iPhone 14 just came out. Why would I get it, right? It, everything's, there's some iteration that's happening. And, and some of the spaces where there's going to be really transformative change, like uh, around climate technologies and stuff like that, Vermont is very well positioned to take advantage of that in all, in, in all the right ways. Uh, and then back to the creative economy thing, um, you look through, you know, decades, millennia of creatives and the outdoors inspires. And what better place could you be than Vermont to be able to like take creative inspiration from the world at large and then be able to bring that to your work in a way that really is important? Um, I think, you know, that's another intrinsic advantage to Vermont. And I am fully optimistic that like over the next like three to five years, we're going to see some fantastic ideas come out of this ecosystem. I, I love that he described Vermont as we. Yeah. So we stick in. That's good. And you're so right. I, I think back to early in my career here, my perfect day. I, I snowboarded one morning with Jake Carpenter in the chair, powder, came to work. It was a cancer research team at UVM. We were doing something. And I think that night saw Barishnikov dance at the Flint Theater. Like, mm-hmm. And there was a couple of beers and pizza in there too, but, <laughs> but that was like, wow, you can yeah. do it. And mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. know. I think I drank the Kool-Aid up here. How about you? Yeah, I'm getting there for sure. Hey, Sam, we're getting close to like getting close asking to time. All right. what's, well, what just, happened after Launch Squad? I have one Did you more. recently leave? Uh, I did. Just yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. So I was just going to say you're, you're finished up at Launch Squad. You're yeah. spending more and more time in Vermont. What's next for Mike? I'll keep you posted. Okay. So and I've, in the meantime, yeah. we're going to continue to send companies and founders your way for a little wisdom. That, I'd, I'd be thrilled to do it. Yeah, Absolutely. you've been so helpful too. And, and, and we're just so lucky when you come join us at Middlebury during our J-term class with entrepreneurs over the years. That really means a lot to us and to them um, as well. So you want to do it, Magic Wand? Hit it, Dave. I feel like I took your last question. No, it's I'm like, okay. I'm feeling crappy. It. Okay. <laughs> Magic wand, superpowers time. Okay. Okay. And oh, I feel like he feels like he has superpowers anyway, so it's sort of redundant. But anyhow, <laughs> if you could change one thing in Vermont, what would you change? Wow. All right. I'll give you the, I'll give you the goofy answer, and then I'll give you the real answer. The goofy answer is just make each season three months long. <laughs> I like I dig me some winter I don't dig me some five months of winter story of my life you know I think yeah. so, so, Wait, did, didn't that come up earlier this week yeah, where like yeah. he's like I want winter to end on a certain date in yeah. March yeah, or something like I, yeah. I'm I'm a seasons person but let's let's all take our proper share yeah winter's <laughs> right? really creeping on both sides yes 
Yeah. Yes. Are you on one of those like closet programs where your clothes swap out, you know, on a well, certain date, right? You know, okay. And I'm still in shorts, so they'll be going till November. Um, so in terms of the true magic wand, um, I would like, and this isn't just a Vermont thing, this is a world thing, but I think Vermont would benefit from this as well. I would like there to be like a Harry Potter style sorting hat where the greatest minds went on the biggest problems and didn't go chasing derivative values in New York or, you know, other ways to try and create, you know, incremental wealth or generational wealth for them and instead figure out how to beat cancer. Figure out like these really big vexing problems. Um, It's... We're facing a lot of stuff, and I firmly believe entrepreneurs are the greatest minds we have because they're not bought into conventional thinking. Mm. And I think some of these problems are so big that you need that mindset, but then you also need it with the top like intellectual rigor because these problems are scary and hard. Man, that's such a good magic wand one. Just assigning people to certain problems. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. That would be a superpower, right? I know, for real. I love it. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for sharing your story and your, your time with us. This has been Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series is supported by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. Let's get back to work.